They really have to be a jack or jill of all trades. They manage our OKRs and provide leverage for our entire leadership team. The glue that holds us together and the grease that makes us go faster. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the inaugural episode of the COS Pod. I'm your host, Mike Maceda, and we're excited to have you. Today's guest is Scott Amenta. Scott was the chief of staff at Spring, a company focused on improving the mobile shopping experience from 2016 to 2018, and is a co-founder of the Chief of Staff Network. He has created and fostered a community of over 370 chiefs of staff from all around the world. As a member, I can really say it's been a great group to be a part of and learn from other chiefs. Scott was also interviewed in a New York Times article with the title, Hail to the Chief, which dove into the rise of the role and how so many companies now identify it as a key hire early on. Excited to have you on. So to, to start, again, would love to just hear about your background um, and what got you interested in the Chief of Staff role. So I, I started my career, I, I guess, like most undergrads in business school, thinking I would go into either banking or consulting. Yep. And basically, that's kind of the only career path that I would say most business schools are, are to this day, still pushing their undergrads towards. Um, and certainly at NYU Stern, going down to Wall Street was the, the dominant career path. So I, I actually ended up going and, and coming across an oddly named company at a career fair. The company was called Local Bacon. And I remember looking at the list and thinking, this is a really funny name to be next to, <laughs> you know, Goldman Sachs and J.P. Morgan Chase and, and Bank of America. And so I went over to that table first. And uh, that ended up being one of the only startups at that career fair. They later went on to become a company called Jibe. And that ended up being one of my first internships at, at NYU, working on their kind of marketing and operations team over well, I think maybe two or three semesters and really just learning the kind of ins and outs of a five to 10 person startup and what it meant to be building a technology product and, and going up against much larger companies and trying to win accounts and trying to actively build a presence on, on college campuses as well. That makes a lot of sense and matches up a lot with my background. Again, I went into consulting, but going to University of Chicago, everyone is studying economics and going to work on Wall Street or some financial firm. So sure. I can definitely understand that perspective. Yeah. And it was from that experience that I, I started telling myself, okay, maybe there's a path here where I can join a startup after college and make it a real career path for myself. None of my college counselors were, were telling me how to do that well. I certainly didn't really have any classes that were saying, here's how you join a startup and what role you should be aiming to join. Mm-hmm. And this is back in 2010. So even the New York City technology scene was not really anything what it is today. And I ended up towards my kind of senior year, still going down the path of doing the interviews for all the consulting firms and and banks and and really actively thinking, okay, that's going to be my first job. And then I'll I'll figure out what comes next after that. I remember on the same day that I got my first consulting offer, I also got a call from um, a very small VC called NYC Seed in New York, run by Owen Davis, who I had had one chat with maybe four or five months previous (laughs) to that call. And he called me out of the blue and said, hey, I've got an internship here for you. It's a full-time role. You'll get paid, but it'll only last X number of months. We'll see how it goes. And I hung up the phone, responded over email like two hours later, like, yes, this is what I want to do. And ended up working with him for, I think, five or six months. Then ended up transitioning. He made an introduction to Foursquare. They were kind of the hot company at the time. And ended up joining Foursquare, also in like an associate position. And there's where I met one of my first mentors, Eric Friedman. That really opened my eyes up to, hey, there's actually a a few different positions I can play. 
um, at these very early stage companies. I mean, in the four months or five months that I was at Foursquare, I watched them grow from 30 people to 120 people. And that rapid growth created a number of kind of organizational problems and scaling mm-hmm. problems and, and kind of team considerations that I was already starting to map out in my head. Well, if Foursquare is going through this, every other company that is roughly the size with this amount of fundraising is probably going through very similar challenges. Definitely. Um, and in the associate role, were you getting, I guess, visibility into, again, kind of the whole company overall, or was it more um, specific to operations or marketing? So my role was actually more specific to business development. And that's always okay. something that I've come back to in my career as kind of the, the, the foundation of my skill set. Mm-hmm. I would say my, my insight into kind of the, the, the company challenge was, A, just the, the culture of Foursquare was very open. I mean, Dennis was very open to kind of sharing all the things that were happening at the, even the most senior level. Um, mm-hmm. And B, as I said, the, the company was fairly small at that point. So there was really nothing to hide. Yeah. And, and as the company was growing, these things were apparent to everyone. And so from Foursquare, I ended up moving to Techstars. And that's where I met David Tisch and, and worked at Techstars with four out of the 10 companies that were running in the fall program. Mm-hmm. And that's where I really got my hands dirty, kind of acting as a generalist for a number of companies all at once, doing everything from operations to marketing, to strategic planning, to writing, I think I wrote all of their pitch decks for that class. That's an awesome um, experience. Yeah. And that, that was, that was the experience that told me like, okay, there's a lot of things to do here at these early stage companies. And I don't really necessarily feel like I'm ready to be a founder today, but I want to, I want to be at the kind of ground level of a startup and I want to get my uh, feet wet in, in helping to build that company into something real. That all makes a ton of sense. And again, just thinking about my experience at prompt that aligns a lot with how we think about scaling. We've got, again, myself as the chief of staff, we have other operations generalists, again, people who are smart, uh, but just understand problems, have good frameworks on how to tackle them. And again, are, are interested in, in all these types of different things and learning. They want to grow themselves and, and we can help them grow. That's where I kind of ended up as a chief of staff was really trying to keep myself in that kind of generalist position so that I could learn as much as possible about how a company grows, how a company operates smoothly, um, and what it takes to get there without being necessarily siloed into a dedicated sales position or a marketing or operations position. And for, for me, that's where the chief of staff role uh, really emerged. That lines up with a lot of other people, either that are looking for roles or that may have ended up in a role like, like myself. So here comes the the big loaded question. How do you define the chief of staff role? Yeah, th- this is a tough one and there, <laughs> there's no real answer. And I think over the course of this podcast, you'll probably have uh, dozens of different definitions. So I, I'm excited to see that evolve. So I think most often chiefs of staff roles, they get intertwined either with executive assistant positions and or today biz ops functions. There's some obvious overlap between all of them in some ways. But there's also some important distinctions. So biz ops, those roles tend to be a little bit broader. As a chief of staff sometimes does, these teams are typically really good at parachuting into problems across the organization where teams need additional support, they're Mm -hmm. connecting dots, and then they're very often moving on to the next challenge. An EA position is really important as well. They're effectively there to help their, their executive optimize at 100% of their capacity. 
the chief of staff really differentiates between those two roles um, because they're essentially there to double that executive's capacity. Yep. So they're typically working sometimes in a siloed position. And that also means that they're running projects and sometimes handling meetings or communication on behalf of their CEO. That's usually for one or two people at most. That obviously ladders down to the rest of the organization, but typically from a reporting structure, you're dealing with the highest ranks of the company and you're effectively there to, to double their capacity. And the alignment between the executive um, assistant and the more biz ops chief of staff is again, you're looking to maximize the output that a CEO or the leader that you're supporting can't have. Um, again, with the biz ops, you hope that you can leverage that chief of staff as the executive a bit more than you might an executive assistant. So I, I definitely see those parallels. And one thing that I've came across too is that every company is different based on either the executive themselves, if they're supporting the executive team overall, um, and even the size of the company too. So prompt where I'm at, we're about 20 employees and I am probably a little bit more of an ops generalist than some other chiefs of staff might be that are larger companies. So I'm a bit of our VP of HR, VP of finance, compliance as well. So doing a little more blocking and tackling than some others who are larger companies really focused on supporting their one executive and, and prioritizing their schedule and initiatives and executing there. And again, within executives themselves, they all have their different cadences and how they like to work with people. So I think that's another big variable that I've come across in talking to other chiefs in the chief of staff network that you put together. I think it's been great to get perspective from people who are chiefs of staff at AT&T, which I think they have over 100 chiefs of staff. <laughs> and again, going all the way down to early stage startups. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you, you will probably get into this. You definitely see a very broad range in terms of the responsibilities that a chief of staff is typically tackling at the larger companies versus some of the smaller companies that you see today. Definitely. And I guess that, that leads pretty well into the next question. Is there any broad timing around when you think a company should be looking for a chief of staff? We'll limit it to more traditionally, like once you're, you're growing in a startup, and you're looking for a chief of staff to support either your CEO or your executive team? Yeah. So uh, as I was saying, I think there are some common differences depending on the size of a company. Mm -hmm. So smaller companies, let's say under 50 people, generally need operators that can fill gaps of roles they've not yet hired. And these generalists are more so responsible for you know, covering the CEO or founding team for as long as possible, where those founders may typically be trying to fill those roles themselves. Yep. So it makes sense that a COS has effectively been adopted, I guess, in lieu of what was formerly called just a generalist position. And you yep. often saw startups just hire a generalist to help fill those gaps. That has now basically become the chief of staff at these earlier stage companies. There's exceptions. I think depending on whether the CEO, for example, is a first-time founder or not, and, and has the know-how and credibility to handle some of those things themselves because they've done it before and they can block and tackle maybe more projects alone. Mm -hmm. But I would say for the most part at the earlier stage companies, chief of staff often finds themselves with their hands or fingers in a lot of different pots, trying to play the stopgap to, uh, to the roles that don't exist and then are, are there to move on as that role gets filled by, by a specialist. Yeah, absolutely. And one phrase I've heard a lot is that you're responsible for everything and responsible for nothing all at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> and anecdotally, I've actually heard a little bit is that a chief of staff can sometimes almost be like a COO position. I don't know what your thoughts are on that and, and if it's almost like a COO light for some of these early stage companies, because ultimately you are trying to complement 
the skill set of the CEO. I think sometimes you're not quite at that position to hire another COO, assuming they're not a co-founder. Yeah, I, I agree. I think I think in the earlier stage companies, COO light makes a lot of sense in terms of how to think about how that position operates within the company. Mm. I think as you move in towards some of the larger companies, and no, we're not talking super large, like I would say anything greater than maybe 100 employees. Okay. In these cases, companies, tech startups specifically, have already gone through multiple doublings of headcounts, uh, sometimes in under a year. And they're typically trying to build processes that will last them through the next waves of growth. So you normally start to see more formalized executive teams put in place as well. And what that calls for is a chief of staff that can take on certain responsibilities that will actually be pretty consistent through that chief of staff's tenure. And so those can be things like company communication, Mm -hmm. strategic planning processes, managing OKR processes. More than ever, those need to be managed centrally. And I think that's where a chief of staff at these slightly larger corporations can can really start to excel, especially for, again, for a first-time CEO, all of that can be a very daunting, if not impossible thing to do alone. Yep. And in some ways, chiefs of staff are really there to help fill that void of loneliness. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can definitely see that. And again, the chief of staff role in and of itself can be, I think, a bit lonely sometimes. One other question I had for you is how often are you seeing chiefs of staff that are just working with the CEO or their executive directly and ones that have a team that they're working with. Just thinking in my experience, I've come across some companies that either formally have a team under a chief of staff or they have um, a team looking to improve processes within other departments. This is probably more so for larger organizations. So in my experience, when I was a chief of staff, I became a chief of staff when we were around 60 employees. Mm -hmm. By the time the company was acquired, we were closer to 130 employees. I was reporting directly to my CEO, but actually over time, I reported also to my president equally. Okay. And so my reporting structure was maybe a little odd in, in that sense. I didn't have anyone directly working below me or, or reporting to me. I have seen some organizations where executive assistants or, or an executive assistant team, if there are more than one, are reporting directly to the chief of staff. And then that chief of staff is typically reporting usually to one executive, CEO, president, et cetera, uh, but obviously working very closely with the entire executive team. And I think a lot of the, the responsibilities that I just mentioned, anything from a strategic planning process, managing OKRs, these are things that typically ladder down from the executive team all the way across the company. Yep. And a chief of staff is really there to kind of help bridge that gap from one team to the next. Definitely. You want to connect the silos that naturally happen and get information from one group to another where it might be a little tougher. Yeah. And I think a, a chief of staff can be quite good and effective at bridging those silos in some ways because they're not those employees' direct manager, right? True. So. If a manager comes to you, even from a different department, as a mid-tier employee, you may be very reluctant to share your honest and candid feedback with that person, knowing mm -hmm. that it might have an impact on a salary increase, a bonus, a promotion, et cetera. With the chief of staff, granted, there's a lot of trust that needs to be built over time, but knowing that person has the ear of the executive team, but is also there to help support the rest of the organization as a lone person can really be effective in kind of, again, bridging the gap between the silos, as you said. 
Just thinking back to uh, my previous job, I worked for a, a healthcare company called WoundTech. We provided wound care for patients in their homes. I wasn't technically a chief of staff there, but again, had a cross-functioning role and was really able to kind of bridge the gap between business development and operations. Business development wants to grow as quickly as possible. Operations needs to support them. So naturally, there's some butting of heads, but really showing the perspectives of the different groups and bringing them together and, again, talking about how we are aligned goal-wise. Thinking about executives overall and how they think about the chief of staff position, are there any best practices they should be thinking about if they're looking to hire chief of staff? Yeah, great question. So I think there's two important things that are often overlooked in hiring for this role. Because it's very easy to put together a relatively loose job description of here's the things that we're thinking of you doing, strategic planning, we need someone to manage OKRs, we need someone to take over responsibilities for XYZ function that don't exist yet. What's often overlooked is, one, how is that employee going to work with the executive that's hiring them? And what I mean by that is, what are the specific skill sets that, let's use a CEO in this case, that a CEO has And what are the areas of the business that they themselves really want to focus on? And what are the things that they're willing to give up, right? Because the the idea of a chief of staff coming in to double your capacity, as I mentioned before, really means that as a CEO, you need to be willing to let some things go. Absolutely. Right. And ideally, you want to let the things go that just don't give you a lot of energy, that you yourself believe someone else can be doing better. And it's important to realize that up front because that means you're going to hire a chief of staff that can, that can take some of those responsibilities immediately and has the skill set to do them well. And that can be the difference between hiring someone with a strong marketing background versus hiring someone with a strong finance background versus hiring someone with you know, a strong business development background, depending on whether the goals are, hey, as a CEO, I don't really want to focus so much on growth, or I don't really want to focus so much on finance, or I don't really want to focus so much on uh, strategic partnerships. Yep. And so I, I would say that's the first thing that an organization needs to think about clearly in terms of hiring a chief of staff. The executive offboarding some responsibilities to other people, I think it's really a shift in mindset from constantly executing to potentially delegating, and even sometimes um, like automating a process. Sometimes executives and operations generalists, and even myself, you'll get so used to constantly blocking and tackling that you don't think about how can I automate this process? And you're really focused on executing, but not being able to leverage yourself and move on to the next thing. So I can definitely see that being um, tricky for executives to delegate or remove themselves um, from a process. It's a good point. I think especially for for CEOs, and and you see this often written in, in various medium blog posts, A CEO thinking about how do they redefine their role as the company grows. I think when you hire a chief of staff, it's one of the first moments sometimes where a CEO really has to confront that reality of like, what are the things that I'm great at and want to continue doing where the organization needs me most? And what are the things that I'm willing to hand off to someone that hopefully I know well, but also in in, in many cases, I may be hiring for the first time. The next thing is, How do you hire someone and go through and run an interview process where you can quickly establish not just credibility, but also trust in that person, right? And and trust in any employee is important at the beginning, but even more so when you're hiring executives and especially when you're hiring a chief of staff that is going to be reporting and working with executives Mm -hmm. that may not necessarily understand how that function works with their particular uh, role. And so 
What you don't want to have is a chief of staff come in that has a great marketing background and a CMO saying, well, why the heck is that person here? And I think that's often why you see companies hire that position internally, right? Because Mm -hmm. this person has come from a background where they've already ideally established some trust within the organization, maybe not with the executive team, but with other managers. They know how the company works kind of operationally. And they also have good insight into how the company is growing and and what the long-term vision and culture of that business are to to sustain. And so an internal hire makes a lot of sense in that case. For a lot of startups, it's not always the case that you have that person readily available and also Mm -hmm. someone that is willing to step into such a ambiguous and and sometimes very tumultuous position with no clear end in terms of what (laughs) happens after a chief of staff tenure. and, And I think we'll get there. And so just as often you see those roles get posted on LinkedIn, I've heard from a number of CEOs that when those roles, and you've probably seen this yourself, when those roles do get posted, I mean, you you get a lot of applications. Sure, it's all Weeding through those applications is is really difficult. There's plenty of qualified candidates out there, but how do you really define what a qualified candidate is? I think you really have to take a step back and run through those, that, that first two things that I, that I just mentioned. And then to the second point that you brought up, I think institutional knowledge is huge with a chief of staff role. Definitely take some time to ramp up if you're, you're new to the company, like I was, I'd say it was about three to six months to really uh, feel comfortable in the role. But after that, I think you really are able to again, leverage yourself and, and improve the company overall. And once you gain the trust of the other employees, then you can really make a big difference. Yeah, I, I agree. Unlike other positions, you, you can come into a sales role, be handed a Rolodex of leads and kick off your job the very next day, yep. assuming you've got a good pitch deck and, and the, the kind of selling tactics. Coming in as a chief of staff and having to build trust with an executive team, having to allow an organization to understand what your role is and how you can make their jobs more effective and how you unlock kind of communication gaps between the organization. Those things take a little while to, to unravel and, and figure out. And so that institutional knowledge, it really helps. It's not always the case that companies can hire internally, and I'm certainly not 100% yeah. advocating for it, but it does make a huge difference in terms of how quickly a chief of staff can get up to speed and be operating at kind of full capacity versus someone that's starting afresh and, and maybe super talented, but just has a much harder uphill battle to, um, to get there. Yep, that makes a ton of sense. And just thinking about the, the chief of staff role, I've heard, and I think you, you've written a little bit about this, is that the chief of staff role should probably be, let's say, one to three years and should be a set amount of time. Would love for you to just kind of dive in a little deeper. I don't think many companies think about that when they're hiring. Again, they're just thinking more, we need an ops generalist to help tackle these problems. How should executives look at that time frame as well as applicants? So I've argued that Chief of staff role tenure should be around 18 to 24 months. I, I've certainly seen that from many folks in the chief of staff network come into the position and then move on after, say, a two-year period. My own experience, it was just over two years and probably would have been less except for we were going through an acquisition at the end, and so it, it didn't make sense to, to move at that point. Yeah. I think there are some drawbacks to a chief of staff role that often get overlooked. And, and this is one of the reasons that I think the position shouldn't last longer than say that that 24 month period. Okay. One of them is, as we were talking about before, a chief of staff rarely has direct reports and really to grow into a management or, or senior executive role 
you want to gain more experience managing people. And despite the purview and the context that you get from a chief of staff position, having a wide perspective across the entire organization, you don't necessarily get that management experience. The second thing is you really also don't get deep P&L experience. So chief of staff is rarely that a P&L owner. Also in thinking about how do you level up and how do you take the next step of your career, that's also an important skill set. And the third point is chief of staff, despite being able to work with different managers across different teams, at the end of the day, they're very rarely the decision makers for the ultimate problem they're trying to solve. Yep. And that decision-making power typically lands in the hands of a function-specific manager, despite the chief of staff doing all of the diligence and a lot of the work to get to that point of making a decision. Yep. They're very rarely the owner of that. In general career experience, those three things are really important to, to gain. And so if, you, if you've got someone coming in, say in their mid, late 20s, early 30s, it's a great experience in terms of gaining that wide perspective, really seeing how a company grows and, and, and it can be built from the ground up or, or at scale. But there are a few things missing that would really leverage that person to gaining kind of that executive skill set that they need in the long term. Yep. Thinking about the PL piece, you definitely don't have responsibility. You might have some insight into it and work with finance and things like that. But again, it's, it's very different. Even working with other people who might report to you when it comes to that PL, because I think one advantage you can really take in owning a PL is giving responsibility of different pieces of it to people that you work with. I think this is probably something that executives aren't thinking too much about. I want to put somebody in this role, but ultimately, how many people are actually um, leaving and going to other companies versus staying internally? It'd be interesting to survey the chief of staff network. Most people, again, are doing this role for, like you mentioned, the one to three years, even if it's not set but are ultimately either one, looking to start their own company or two, looking to make um, a jump somewhere else. And, and frankly, this is the advice that I would give to a chief of staff is to start thinking about what comes next, even before you take the role. Even during the interview process, it's something that should be broached with the hiring manager, with the CEO, about how are they thinking about how this role evolves within the organization. When you think about 24 months, even if it's 36 months, it's not that long of a period to be able to take a very ambiguous position and then place them somewhere else in the organization, especially at a rapidly growing startup. Any growth company may or may not have that position readily available for the chief of staff yep. at the end of their tenure. And so it takes both a lot of candid conversations and frankly, a stroke of luck to make sure that that position is there when you're ready to go for it. And then you have to also keep in mind you're going to be up against other specialists that Absolutely. have resumes tailor-made for that role that, that are going to be competing with you, whether they're applying internally or externally, et cetera. And so making the switch internally is hard enough. I would argue actually, and having gone through this myself, making the switch externally, so leaving the company as a chief of staff and moving on to a different organization and joining in a different role, possibly even, even more difficult. And the reason for that is you're now confronted with all of the things that I, I just mentioned, right? You're competing against people with tailor-made resumes for this position, but you're also having to define and explain what you did as a chief of staff, what your accomplishments were and how those accomplishments were measured. <laughs> and someone outside the organization, it's really difficult to say whether or not you did a great job and, and for that matter, even what you did. Definitely. While you're 
in everything technically might fall under the responsibility of somebody else. And it'd be tough to explain to somebody that doesn't um, know the business as well as you do. And I think it's, I think it's important for a chief of staff to be able to carve out say 30 or 40% of their time that is dedicated to a particular project that they could see themselves owning or leading a team on within their organization down the road. Right. And you don't have to necessarily do that day one, but I think that should be a goal that is set at the beginning to try to identify that project that a chief of staff can really be the, you know, the KPI leader on, and and potentially that turns into a longer term part of the business. That makes a ton of sense. If you're looking to keep them internally, that might be the path. Yeah. But oh, this has all been super helpful regarding the role overall. would love to kind of shift to the chief of staff network. I've really enjoyed being a part of it. I think you're over 370 current and former chiefs now, which is awesome. Would love to learn a little bit more about what inspired you to, to create the network. Yeah, I mean, when I think about the idea that there's 370 chiefs of staff out there, and there's certainly more. I mean, we've never actually done any kind of external marketing or wow. reaching out to chiefs of staff on LinkedIn. Everyone has come in through a referral from another member, which I think has really helped create the, the trust within the community that there are other great people here from other great companies um, working for amazing executives, and there's a lot to learn from each other. But yeah, when I think about that number, looking back two or three years when we first started, I, I never assumed that there would be this many chiefs of staff, or frankly, even that it would be a role that would really take off um, yep. in the way it did. And when I first transitioned into the chief of staff role at Spring, one of my mentors who I mentioned earlier, Eric Friedman from Foursquare, he was actually the first one to encourage me just to write about my experience and to talk about some of the things that I was now working on as a chief of staff, the reasons that the company needed a chief of staff, and how we were thinking about defining and ultimately redefining that role every quarter for the next two years. And in that first Medium article, I suggested starting a community with the goals of establishing some common ground and definitions around chief of staff roles. I think that was sorely needed. And I was looking out for my own career and saying, hey, how am I going to explain this outside of spring when no one knows what a chief of staff is outside of what a chief of staff might be doing in the White House? Second goal was really around supporting chiefs of staff to be more successful in their position. We all know it's a very lonely, it's a very lonely role. And so giving chiefs of staff access to other people facing somewhat similar challenges in different contexts, I thought would be really helpful again, selfishly for me, because it was exactly what I needed. And I would say the third goal was really helping CEOs to consider what the role meant within their company and, and again, how to define it for themselves, um, how to think about hiring the role, and then how to think about that chief of staff moving on to something else. And I would say those three goals are still probably the most common things that we see happening as connection points within the network today. Some things have changed. The role is obviously more prevalent. More companies and founders know about the position, understand how the position works within their organizations, um, and are are more willing to hire the role, uh, which is great. I think there's still a lot of ambiguity in terms of what that position means in the long term, how chiefs of staff are moving on to other operational roles or founders themselves, or even moving into the investor space as, as VCs. And so I think there's a lot of knowledge still to be gained there. And we're just starting to see kind of the, the first class, if you will, 
start to graduate out of that chief of staff position <laughs> and, and make those moves. Um, and those stories are always incredibly interesting. So uh, I'm sure you'll have a lot of those people on, on the podcast down the road. But just listening to what it takes to actually move on from the position and do it well is really interesting. Definitely. And based off the three goals you mentioned and where the network is now, I'd say you succeeded in all of them. And it's been great to be a part of. Everyone is super collaborative. And again, constantly sharing different tools, processes, best practices. So I, I, I really enjoyed it. What are some of the things that you're looking to iterate on with the Chief of Staff Network? What are you looking to develop? Are there any focuses or, or key initiatives? Yeah, so I, I think, as you said, one of the most valuable things that have come from the network are really the shared resources, content, feedback, direct and, and pretty candid advice that have come from former and or current chiefs of staff in the community, typically in direct response to, to other members' questions. And I think one of the things that we are really focused on doing is, A, just continuing kind of that, that candidness. I think mm-hmm. keeping and maintaining trust within a growing network where you now don't know all the faces, you don't know all the names, you hopefully know most of the companies, but that's rarely the case as well. <laughs> I think that's one of the most difficult things to maintain in any community. And so we're maintaining the kind of guardrails, making sure that we adhere to our, our community values yep. and also just don't open up the floodgates to allow <laughs> anyone to come through. I think we, we want to maintain a high quality and a high bar of, of chiefs of staff coming from amazing companies with great CEOs, great executives, typically VC-backed, that are facing similar challenges to the people that we already have here. So that, that's the first piece. The second thing is taking those resources, taking that advice, taking that feedback, and turning it into kind of an actionable guidebook or wiki for chiefs of staff to really leverage as they need it. Yep. We're going through a pretty active project right now, trying to take all of those insights and distill them into something a lot more legible, a lot more usable. And so I think what, what I would love to see is a new chief of staff coming in and wondering what they should be doing in their first 90 days. And rather than just reading a couple blog posts from one individual, they can actually get a whole resource guide of you know, exactly the things they should be focused on with toolkits and resources, feedback forms, people to reach out to as they progress through their career. And, and equally for someone moving on from the role, all the stories and, and kind of all of, the, all of the tools that they need to think about, having those conversations, explaining their role to outside companies, et cetera. And frankly, the Chief of Staff podcast as well will play a big role in that because I think unlocking and sharing some of these stories in a way that's different than just text really helps to create that value for, for the members. Yeah, absolutely. And we plan to transcribe uh, these episodes as well. Um, working on the newsletter now, calling it the the Glue Guy newsletter. Very in the in the middle of everything, as is the Chief of Staff, and we hope to have some extra um, content there as well. So one other thing we've been really happy to see is some Chiefs of Staff already going on to start their own companies. Obviously, the role is a great breeding ground for entrepreneurs. And one good example of this that I've seen is Graham Nire, the former Chief of Staff of MongoDB, who recently started the security platform Oso. And they actually went on to raise their seed round from Sequoia last year. That's awesome. I actually met Graham at a chief of staff event that Alicorp put on last year, but glad you're doing so well. Super impressive. I'm thrilled to see this momentum of chiefs of staff becoming founders. And most recently, I started working with two other members of the chief of staff network, Tom Guthrie and Emily Pick, on a new community called Propel. 
And what is this new community focused on? Propel is really a leadership community for future builders. Our primary goal is to find incredible people and help accelerate their progress towards building the next big thing. And so I can also imagine that a lot of people listening to this podcast probably consider themselves to be future founders. So if you think that profile fits you, we'd love to hear from you. You can find more at propel.run. Great. Well, this has been an awesome conversation. Um, really excited to have episode one in the books. And thank you again, Scott. I couldn't think of a better person to, to have on for the first one. I really appreciate it.